0: I, uh, I love the podcast. It's great.
1: Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination.
2: Podcast.
1: Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, this is Dave here, and you're about to listen to a really exciting interview that John and I did with Eleanor Robertson, a feminist author. But before we get into that, I just wanted to have a quick chat about some of the changes that have been happening at Living the Dream. So Living the Dream has made about 41 episodes over just under four years, and we've had, I think, about 14,000, maybe 500, 14,700 downloads last time I checked. And the way that we've recorded pretty much all those podcasts has been yelling at a laptop. So either that's been putting a laptop down in a suburban cafe and having a chat or recording at Skype with us yelling into our increasingly um, aging laptops. And John and I decided that we would try to do a bit of crowdfunding and see if we get some better equipment. We wanted to get some headset USB mics and we wanted to get a portable recorder like the one that I'm currently using now. And so we set up a Possible account and we we aim to raise $300 and we gave ourselves two months to do it. We're really blown away by the support and within seven days, within a week, we raised $1,145. That's allowed us to buy some really, really impressive USB mics and two of these external recorders. And I think in the episode that you're about to hear, you will be able to hear the vast improvement in sound quality. There's still some kinks to work out. Uh, I think my input levels on the USB mic was actually not high enough and so people find this difficult to believe, but in this upcoming episode, I'm not really that loud. And uh, this uh, recorder that I'm holding in my hands at the moment, I think it's gonna take us a little while to really, really get the great sound out of it. Um, But, you know, fantastic. And hopefully, you'll be able to hear what we say and you won't be given terrible headaches. But John and I wanted to really thank everyone for all the support that you have provided us. Sometimes you feel when you're doing a podcast that you're just kind of like uh, yelling into the wind, and it's really um, in beginning to. ...get so much support from people and makes us feel that the podcast is worth doing and to continue doing. We had a whole series of different rewards, as is the nature of these kind of things. Um, One of those rewards was that if you donated a certain amount of money, we would speak highly of you. So Tim Beasley, Tim Tilbrook, Michael Thorne, Dirk Boundy and Joe McKenzie. John and I would like to say you are wonderful people and you make impeccable choices and we would encourage people around you to always listen to you and follow your advice on matters big and small doesn't matter if it's a question of what kind of shoes they should wear today or it's something more serious like when did the Soviet Union fall off the rails they're great people listen to them all right let's get on with the episode hi everybody you are listening to living the dream and you are joined as always by John how's it going John It's going
3: really well, Dave. How How are we sounding on these new microphones? I'm
1: so excited about these new microphones, and I really hope there's actually a noticeable audio difference. Yes. (laughs) Because it was just like, oh, my God, we've got this amazing tech, and it's just like... Then all we have to blame is our own incompetence. Um, So, yes, it's John, and I'm Dave, and you can follow me on Twitter, at With Sober Senses. And, John, what's your Twitter? Is it a handle? Is that the term I'm looking for?
3: Monica? I think we're 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 too old for this. At... John
1: Puccini. Um... Oh, you, you just, terrible sound quality, you just dropped out there, John, you're betraying our good mics, um, and we're very excited because we're joined today by Eleanor Robertson. Eleanor, how are you?
0: Hello, I'm very good, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Like, John and I are really excited that you're on the show because we've <laughs> read your uh, your essays in Mianjin, and I'm not sure if that's only a sample of your work, and they Engagements, I guess, with feminist debates that presents this really kind of uh, like exciting and anti-capitalist perspective. And we really wanted to just uh, spend some time today kind of talking with you about what you think is going on in, say, feminism in Australia and what you think uh, like a viable and radical feminist politics looks like. Um, But how's your evening going?
0: Um, It's going pretty well. I made a pretty half assed kind of paella. Nice. Had a glass of wine, and now I'm talking to you
1: guys. Oh, well, that's that's brilliant. And you're on Twitter as well, aren't you?
0: Yes, I am. Um, my handle is a made-up word and not my name. It's marrowing. Like marrow, like what's inside a bone, and then oh, yeah. in, like it's a verb. <laughs> yeah, nice.
1: And uh, do you have other presents on social media that people can check out if they're interested in your work?
0: Oh. <gasps> Um, not really. I have a Medium account that I've done a couple of posts on, which you can just – I can't remember what the username is, but if you Google Eleanor Robertson Medium, it should pop up immediately.
1: Cool. So I um, one thing that's been really noticeable at the moment is that there's a lot of mainstream press currently that says that we are in a feminist moment and that the evidence of this, I guess, is typified by hashtag Me Too and the kind of really – considerable society-wide kind of discussion that seems to be going on um around intimate and sexual violence and how widespread it is across society are we are we in a feminist moment
0: um yeah i mean we i think we i think this is sort of the um the apex of the feminist moment that has been happening probably for the past five or ten years maybe not 10 years, but definitely like five to eight years, I feel like has been the time that um, one, one version or a couple of versions of feminism at least have been getting a lot of, um, yeah, attention in the mainstream press. I think this is probably, um, yeah, just a, a high point in that general trend.
1: And what, what, like, what do you think is the quality or the politics of that current feminist moment?
0: Um, I'm sort of, I'm in about eight different minds about this. I have, I sort of don't have a, a a completely, you know, ironclad analysis of it, but I will say, um, I mean, this is sort of a facile observation, but it definitely has to do with social media and it Mm. definitely has to do with, um, I think how, how we engage with the, I mean, the culture industry to use a very sort of, um, Old school cultural studies term, because um, I think a lot of this, um, a lot of this new feminism, maybe maybe most of it in the past eight years has has happened um, in in and through and around um, the consumption of of cultural products, and I mean you see that in the Me Too movement because it it started in Hollywood.
1: I think that's actually a really really fascinating. And it's something that, I like, I don't know if, if my kind of hand take on this is, I feel that every time when you kind of have a critical attitude about culture, it's really hard to avoid just collapsing into some kind of snobbery or, like, some kind of culture was more radical back in the day. But, mm-hmm. like, like, there seems to be, like, a... Um, like there was a time when you know that concept of the culture industry was presented as a way of like understanding a force of domination. You know, like we have these kind of structures of culture; they reproduce ideology or whatever, and they, um, you know, work to normalize us within, within capitalism. But now it seems to be almost like the debates around the culture industry look to the culture industry as if they're a force of liberation. Like, if only we can get the correct forms of representation that might appear on the culture industry, then this will be the way that we have tangible. Material impacts and it's like I don't know if there's at the same time There's like politic, like the kind of active activity people would have previously Against the state now gets directed to the culture industry like I feel very disorientated by these kind of changes that are going on
0: Yeah, it's it's very weird, isn't it? I mean like even for me like basically all of my it like exposure to an involvement with feminism has happened in the past ten years Um, and uh, like, it's taken me so long to even start to get a handle on, on what you say, like how, how the culture industry is involved with feminism. Um, uh, you know, I I feel like I, I don't have a huge perch, like sort of, you know, academic or money or otherwise from which to sort of impose snobbery on other people. So I feel pretty comfortable saying like, that I still think that, you know, the idea of the culture industry as a force of domination, it, it, you know, is it, to me is still largely true. Um, and if I guess if you accept that, the question then becomes, what about what is it about this sort of strain or variant of feminism that is? What is it about that kind of feminism that actually is compatible with the status quo? If that makes sense, mm. that's the question that it raises for me.
3: Um, in terms of the way that radical movements relate to culture historically this is actually a really really interesting question because you're right that there's something about <clears throat> this kind of moment that we're in where we're appealing to culture and expecting cultural leaders to impose to be models or something in some way which is very interesting and certainly not historically speaking the way that the radical left related to politics or that social movements related to culture In terms of, say, if you want to go back to even like the Harlem Renaissance in in America, it was African-American people organising culture for African-American people in African-American contexts using African-American means. And then in the 1970s, you've got the Black Arts Movement, obviously, and like black exploitation films done by um, African-American directors. Um, And then in the women's movement, of course, there's um, a huge amount of cultural production that's happening there, but for women and by women in a very kind of autonomous sense and not really appealing to hollywood or anything so it's an interesting sort of movement i suppose um in relation to kind of dominant culture which was always seen as something that was white and heteronormative and was beyond repair basically
1: because this actually that brings me to one of the articles of yours that i want to us to discuss which is from Mianjin is this how you say that I always pronounce that wrong. Mianjin I say Mianjin. Um it's from autumn twenty sixteen. It's called Get Mad and Get Even and there's this line in it that says I'm going to, it's half of a sentence. 21st century feminism's primary medium, the diversity critique, has at its functional terminus the freedom of consumers to purchase a picture of a utopia from a company company whose interests lie in preventing any of those utopias from occurring. That's amazing. Yeah. Can, can mm. you kind of unpack that idea for us a little bit more?
0: Yeah, that that's that that I'm pretty proud of that line too. I think it's one yeah. of the best ones in that essay. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in that essay like because I read it, you know, 2 and a bit years ago that I I either don't agree with now or go back and I'm like, oh, "Really?" But mm. I, I still think that line is 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 true. Um I mean, um I think this probably has something to do um, Dave with what you said before about Sort of the um, the collapse of the state as a sort of way that people feel um, are able or they feel motivated to, you know, ch- change parts of their lives um, on the terrain of the state. That I feel is no that it it's it's no longer sort of a real thing. I mean, people might disagree with that, but really, I think that that is true. Um, but there are certain needs that. Um, are are met by um, what used to be, you know, imperfect as it was, like the the sort of political participation that occurred um, in the 20th century that sort of no longer occurs now. Um, And I think a lot of the, I think one of the reasons that, you know, feminism and um, other social movements are so heavily, um, seem to be so heavily represented in very mainstream sort of Hollywood pop culture culture, is because there's this set of needs there that are going completely unmet by anyone else and you know if you're a savvy sort of marketing executive or a movie executive or whatever you know the, the the best the best of those people the most talented of those people working in those industries the thing that they're good at is like you know putting their finger to the pulse of you know the vibe of audiences if that makes sense um and I think that the vibe of audiences these days like what they the needs that they're sort of um, that they need the needs that they want met somehow um, is like sort of has to do with the kind of um, participation and participatory control that you used to get through politics or radical political mm. movements and stuff like that mm. and I don't think it takes a genius to. Um, And especially if you have a a sort of monetary interest um, in in meeting those needs, I I don't think it takes a genius to notice that um, one of the things that pop culture does these days is try and meet those needs, but not sort of in an authentic way, because they're not really offering anything, you know, materially real. What they're offering is basically comfort.
3: A spectacular sort of revolution. If to use our, our Gita boards concept.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a representation of a representation of a representation of something that was wrong to
1: begin with. <laughs> there was, there was <laughs> we can a, edit this all out. A, I think, again, there's this real danger of like falling into some kind of a elitism about it. But there's something I've been thinking about recently is even like the the. the The importance that pop culture has in our lives has also remarkably changed. Like, you know, I was at the shops the other day and I kind of looked around to see the amount of people, say my age, so I'm almost 40, that wear like Punisher t-shirts or... um, (laughs) But it's, it's like, that's a relatively new phenomena. There would have been a time when to like physically present yourself identifying with some kind of cultural production, and it would have previously been music. Wasn't so itself? Nah. Wasn't it? Wasn't itself to mark you as being as being alternative, right? Like, but now it's mm. like, and it, it's not like it's not bullshit. It's actually this. The, the saturation of the culture industry or the spectacle and i know there'll be some purists out there that say you can't mix your adorno with your bidu um with adorno with your yeah. debord let alone Deboard. your bidu um so <laughs> but but still like there's it does really speak to a kind of a power in our lives and i think it's also like is it where the kind of like um does it have something to do with how, like, with the end of the strict kind of relationship of state, family, church, that this is where gender is played out and shaped today?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, the, the, the erosion of, like, I guess you would call them sites of meaning-making that used to exist is definitely part of it. Mm. Um, Like, this. another thing that I tend to think, like, you know, I don't. I don't really have much to sort of back this up. It's sort of a an, an, an intuitive conjecture. Um, is that the? I mean, it has to do with the the sort of the relationship between uh, women's labor in the paid workforce and how these things get presented in culture. Um, I don't think that you would be seeing this kind of. Um, it. I mean. From the from the outside, the surface appearance of it is a sort of trickle-down feminism where things sort of happen in Hollywood and then they um, happen in movies or happen in Hollywood and then they get picked up by the mainstream media and then everyone gets interested in it and um, then supposedly, you know, change happens magically. Um, I tend to think it goes completely the other direction. And that the, the reason that um, sort of mainstream media and entertainment industries have any Interest in um, pandering to young female audiences, in the first place, is because they have money to spend. They have money to spend now, where they would not necessarily have had money to spend before.
2: Mm.
0: And so there's a um, there's a sort of a clear uh, interest structure there that incentivizes, you know, the production of a particular culture that meets the needs of. Sort of our alienated young women, um, mm. and that presents itself as a kind of like, I don't know, for want of a better word, sort of pop liberal feminism.
3: It's really interesting. I was um, drawn back to when you had a, 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 you were part of a massive Twitter pylon on the weekend on that <laughs> Labour bloke who, who was. Um, a bit cranky that someone had put a line through Jed Kearney's face and then um, refused to be corrected by numerous women that he was, in fact, being a dick. Um, but you said, used it to him, you, know, it, it, you used this term, you're like, um, it's great that you're using women's liberation as a way of kind of improving yourself or something to that effect. And the term women's liberation is something you don't really hear at all anymore, a concept like, cause the women's liberation movement was one of those political movements that you're talking about, right? That, that yeah. has kind of gone into abeyance that is no longer there to, you know, like the women's liberation movement produced a whole lot of cultural goods and cultural artifacts, you know, um, I am woman, you know, all sorts of things that, you know, were on that cusp of the popular culture and kind of alternative culture. But is it something to do with the abeyance of like that radical, of some sort of radical potentiality? there that's important
0: um yeah i think that's definitely true i think that sort of i don't know i I hesitate to use the word materialist because that sort of implies a a, uh like a commitment to marxism of some kind but like when i say materialist feminism i mean like you know political demand driven Mm. feminism that seeks to sort of improve women's everyday lives sort of on the ground um that definitely is in abeyance, and like you mentioned, the the <laughs> hilarious Twitter thing. Um, but the reason that I chose um, to use the word, like to use the phrase "women's liberation" in in scolding mm. that guy, was because it it has more force. Like it was a conscious mm. decision. I was like, I'm like, you know, I want this scold to land.
3: <laughs> yeah, it is really really fascinating that that this term women's liberation carried a whole set of different meanings and materialist meanings. Often it was, you know, like you say in, in your, in your articles, it's about, it was about improving the material conditions of women, you know, rape crisis centers, um, you know, childcare centers, you know, things that are actually going to improve those, those material conditions. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting that like, not that sort of feminist inflected pop culture was great, you know in the old days but it's you know it it had sort of a movement to refer to it had something Mm -hmm. to represent if that makes sense there was something there for it to try and try and represent and contemporary feminist pop culture i feel like doesn't it can't refer to itself as a relevant sort of movement in the present so what does it refer to Uh,
1: on this point i want to Kind of go back to that get mad and get even article because like my understanding of it is you know I think both these essays that we want to talk about are really interesting in the sense that like I don't know if polemics the right term but in both this one and the other one on intersectionality you kind of set up a debate you go here's there's a current like way that we think about these things and then you you kind of. Talk about specific examples but you generalize from those to talk about a broader phenomena and it's really convincing and rather than for arguing for one side of the debate i think you really effectively show how the debate is a product of the particular historical circumstance we're in but also there's a repressed ability to go beyond it but in the first one get mad and uh, and get even i think you know you you take a, a very like razor sharp critique of um what we might call lean-in feminism, like a razor-shark critique of that kind of um, diverse diversity, representation, pop culture feminism. But you also make this, I think, quite brave and challenging defence of Jermaine Greer, where you say, look, okay, yep, she's wrong on trans questions, and I think we all agree with that. But then you also, um, like defend her legacy and i guess the legacy of the 70s feminist movement but and also i think kind of like try to explain why her being wrong on trans is located to a notion of of being woman that was central to that Mm. movement and i'd really like to hear your thoughts about that and kind of um, explain it for our listeners a little bit more
2: yeah,
0: I mean, oh, man, Jeremy. I mean, she's, you know, in 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 many ways, I'm sort of like. I felt I felt sort of compelled to contextualize her, like just a, a just completely atrocious hatred of trans women, um, not to make it, not to sort of excuse it, but but because I think that. Um, you know, it, it is sort of a core belief of mine. I, I guess this is sort of motivated reasoning because I myself, I'm just a huge know-it-all, but it is sort of a core belief of mine that you can't really, you know, you can't properly criticise something unless you know where it comes from and you know what motivates it. Um, and it's sort of clear to me, you know, listening to Jermaine Greer, that there, there are there are certain, like, There are certain tendencies in her thought and and those tendencies like mixed um, mixed with her age and mixed with her involvement in sort of as a figurehead of second wave feminism and her, you know, quite, I think, you know, obvious and understandable attachment to sort of radical second wave feminism as a movement. All of those things sort of like combine in the present with a way, in a way that makes her scapegoat trans women um and you know I I sort of do have some sympathy for for her position just because she's so fucking old like I you know Mm. I'm sure I'll be you know exactly the same when I'm old like you don't want to you know re-examine the things that you especially when you're like you know a figurehead of something like Greer was you know it's it's sort of hard to be very sort of self-reflective and analytic about what you yourself were involved in in your youth. Um, I think she's completely wrong about trans issues. But to me, it yeah, it makes sense. Like, um, I think it's sort of, uh, it's obvious at least to me that when people feel um, backed into a corner somehow, which I think Jermaine Grimm probably does feel backed into a corner, you know, whether or not that's reasonable, the first thing you do is is find a scapegoat. You find someone to blame it on. And trans women are just a really easy scapegoat for her. I mean, mm. you know, they they were around when when she was young, but they certainly weren't they certainly didn't have any, you know, anything like the kind of presence that they do now. And that's the that's the I think, you know, again, this is conjecture. I can't read Jermaine Greer's mind, but it's one of those things that is obviously very, very different now than it was back then.
1: I think mm. for me this raises like a whole series of questions like um, I guess specifically it's like how we understand and evaluate the um, contribution of what we might call second-wave feminism both ma- materially and in theory but also more broadly how we understand the inheritance of any of the social movements of the past which I'm sure are often wrong about a whole lot of things and um, like one thing that I see quite a lot is that there seems to be like a kind of like cavalier um, just dismissal of 70s feminism as it was just like white feminism profoundly limited it was only about mm. advancing women within the realm of white 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 privilege and I think this often like is just completely blind to what the history of that movement was and it's like serious engagement with questions of like the, the, the racial and imperial order of the globe. But also it's like, you know, if theory, if a theorist is wrong about like something really profoundly wrong that we profoundly disagree with. Does that lead us to then discarding everything else? Like, I, I there's a book that I never finished reading, it cover to cover. It's by Maria Meas. It's called Patriarchy and World Accumulation. And it's, I also
0: have that, and I've never finished reading it.
1: But but it's like you know, like there's a couple of pages in the beginning that are just like fucking terrible on trans issues, right? But you know, this was like a, a, a like a. Um, you know, an analysis that came from really serious engagement. I think mainly with women in India has a critique of imperialism and has been really useful in understanding, like how the global creation of unwaged reproductive labour is necessary for the functioning of, of capitalism. And it also, like if you like someone who everyone agrees and I really like Sylvia Federici, like Sylvia Federici in her work talks about her direct her debt to Maria Mies. Right, So, hmm. like, like, how do we approach this kind of legacy, particularly because I think, and I don't want to be putting words in your mouth in get mad and get even, I get the impression that you see something in the feminism of the past that is positive, that the feminism of the present is missing.
0: Yeah, um this is another thing that I'm sort of in in multiple minds about. I mean, I, I sort of split the difference on, uh, was second wave feminism good or bad? Because um, on one hand, I completely agree with you that there is a, almost a sort of submerged intellectual legacy that is, that is super radical. Like, and I think what, what actually happened, as distinct from what we discussed about what happened now, probably was much more radical than, than most of us realise. It's just that the radical elements lost they lost, and so their contribution consistently gets erased. And for me, that, like, I come back to this question of, you know, I, I mean, I asked it about sort of very modern feminism earlier, but, you know, in after I wrote this Get Man, Get Even essay, it the, you know, the question occurred to me, what was it about second-wave feminism that was, you know, so- somehow you know, concordant with the, domin- with the dominant order such that it got, like, quite easily absorbed. You know, in second-wave feminism, like, f- you know, to-, to achieve the gains that second-wave feminism achieved in, you, you know, Western first-world countries, not that many people died. You know, really? it-, it was sort of, we sort of, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of second-wave feminists who are going to listen to this and go, how dare you? But it was sort of easy. A lot of it was sort of easy and so that you know that for me raises the question why was it so easy and I think the answer is you know because the economic and cultural and political status quo had this new need for female labour in the paid workforce and Mm. coming to that realisation was sort of that was a you know a big clock around the ears for me because I was like oh that's why it happened.
2: <laughs>
0: mm. I mean, I don't want to get super simplistic, but that, I like that explanation. Certainly has a lot to recommend it, as far as I'm concerned.
1: I think this is a really difficult point, like because I, for me, if if I'm hearing you correctly, it's talking about that transition from like from post-war um, Keynesian Fordist organisation of capitalism, which had structured into it. A nuclear family with a very strict division of labour and you know the the family wage and then by i guess the early 80s the development of what we might call neoliberalism postmodern, late capital whatever use your your terms and the link between like the movements that caused that break and then how the later version of capitalism took up those very demands in an upside down form and like i I think it's like for me that's like a question that i think we all like i constantly find myself coming back to like it's like that break is now um 30 or 40 years old but we still aren't quite sure how to understand it and how that process of transmission happened i think particularly because like a lot of those social movements were also challenging what it meant to be a social movement like I I was thinking while you were talking Eleanor about you know was 70s changing stuff in the 70s for second wave feminism easy or hard not many people died and I'm I'm not really sure about that I think in the sense that I imagine there was quite a lot of like women who died but in terms of domestic violence and feminism reaction against that but I remember some of the stuff that I haven't read for a really long time ago for, for for a really long time was talking about part of what this feminism was attempting to do was actually invent a new way that you could change society like there's you know the 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 particular model of politics that existed and like some of this stuff seems really kind of i think hokey when we use the language at the time you know like when you know there was the critiques of the idea of revolution of you know of storming parliament those kind of things as essentially being like a projection of, of male sexuality you know like revolution is orgasm as in like one big bang. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like and, like and I think you know maybe there is some kind of validity in these kind of analyses that were at the t- at the time and um rather there was like the like that feminism was so radical how it went about being radical was radically different.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I for me there's again there's there's just a There's a huge, like, conceptual or analytic distinction for me between the feminist movement as it actually happened and the parts of it that got incorporated, like, into dominant culture or dominant politics or dominant society or whatever.
1: Um, Mm
0: -hmm. I think what it, like... You know, in in my, in my sort of darkest, most pessimistic moments, I think to myself, you know, feminism was just whatever happened in the aftermath of the collapse of the family wage. Mm. And, you know, society needed, you know, things to sort of change around after that socially because obviously you can't have the same social forms if women mm. have power in the paid workforce that you can... If
3: they're sort of stuck at home, that's what's really interesting. I'm just thinking about this in terms of the other top the topic of your other other essay, which is of course that great bogey term intersectionality, where you were arguing, I think, but in any case, it's also what the Comanche River Collective, um, an amazing collective of African American women, argued, um, which was basically that the state. Was able to deal with individual claim, individual claims by say white women or by black men in specific ways by saying yes, we'll impose, a, we'll have a quota system or something. Say that this many black men can be, need to be employed in this factory, and that's meeting our obligations under the Equal Rights Act or whatever, you know. But it's when you're dealing with black women as a material condition in the workplace, like that became something that. Could not be met within the prevailing order. Could not be, was not being recuperated, and it was understanding the material nature of that that was kind of really significant and interesting.
0: Yeah, um, I, I think the reason that sort of that happened, and the reason that there was there was a, a need for something like intersectionality, I mean, as it was originally conceived, um, was because that factory and probably many other workplaces just had no need for black women they you know Mm. they could they could get away with treating them badly and so that's what they did and there was no sort of power to force them to do otherwise because that's just not how it works
1: (laughs) Mm. john i'm gonna have to be pedantic and i think you confused your theorist there and the uh, theorist that eleanor um references at the beginning is crenshaw and,
3: yes, the, the Comanche River Collective also actually, were articulating similar ideas in the 70s.
1: So.
0: I think it was the Combahee River Collective. Comahee,
3: sorry.
1: <laughs> no worries. Let's move on to that second essay then, um, because I think it's also super interesting in that you present us with like a really um, like interesting debate where you said like at the moment there's either intersectionality on one side and a kind of class politics on the other and you think that they're both right but inadequate at a certain level could you explain that to us
0: yeah that yeah that's that's a yeah that's a pretty good characterization excuse me of the essay um i just think that they're from they're from different times like they they are they were you know the political forms or the political theories that are appropriate to their particular times and they have, you know, a blind spot exactly the size of their own inability to place themselves in, in history, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, you know, there's obviously a, a sort of uh, renaissance, especially um, in the US and the UK, of a sort of class-first Socialist politics, which, um, you know, I, I find pretty exciting. But I also am very – I, I it, it really concerns me and it really worries me that sort of around the outside edges of, of, of some of that in the UK and, the, and especially in the US, um, there's a really sort of very dismissive, very, you know, haughty attitude towards – Things like intersectionality and and things yeah. like um, I guess what you would call third wave third wave feminism, um, but I think most of that is just you know the people who are involved in the sort of uh, socialist renaissance these days are, are are pretty young and don't remember what it was like back then. I mean I don't remember what it was what it was like back then either. But um, I think it's yeah it's it's really important to recognise that. You know, things like intersectionality, um, you know, happened in a a context where transformation of the social totality was basically considered completely dead and buried. You know, it was over. The wall fell, everything's gone, you know, go home, do your jobs and so on. And I think it's really unfair to analyse things that came out of that period as though there was some kind of you know,
2: mm.
0: possibilities that because of, because they were, you know, ill-educated or, or lazy or ignorant or whatever, the people around them didn't actualize those possibilities because they were somehow individually or collectively wrong or misinformed or sick or whatever. Mm. I really don't think that's true. Um, I think that, um, you know, those ideas were a- as radical as they could possibly have been at the time. Mm. And... There's, I think, we have a lot to learn from those. I, I, you know, times have changed, and I don't think we can just repeat um, what we were doing 20 years ago. But at the same time, you know, the structure of capitalism has changed. You know, since there was a viable class politics in the past, and I don't think that just looking back to, you know, class politics in the post-war era era and going, oh, we'll just do that again, you know, that's just as ridiculous as you know, the sort of the point, the, the very liberal pointy end of, of feminism that says, oh, you know, we don't need to take account of class. We haven't been taking account of class for 20 or more years now. You know, we can just keep making sure that there are action movies that star women. To me, they're, they're, they're sort of equally ridiculous.
1: And there's something about that kind of class politics, which is an identity politics, Right. And it's mm. often, yeah, absolutely. often an identity that has very little um, relationship to the actual ways that we experience the antagonistic mm. relationships of work today. Mm. Yeah. Like you,
3: like, you, like you put it, Eleanor, sorry, it was, it, it, it's an idealist approach rather than a materialist approach because you're imposing a reading of the past a reading from the past on the present when those vernaculars and those understandings emerged organically from the social situations they were in. Yeah, And
2: they
0: exactly. need to be
3: reinvented. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. No
0: worries. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that um, there, there is sort of a, a sort of humorous truth to the idea that all left politics these days is just LARPing. Um, mm. And, you know, in, in the sense that we're just – uh many of us are you know so so bereft of real possibilities in the present like any kind of you know radical aesthetic in the present that we just try to import things from the past um mm. because you know if if we had a sort of leftist if we have any kind of like you know radical left aesthetic these days it's basically like small burb wrapped in duna memes that you see on tumblr like everyone's just Mm. it's you know it's an aesthetic almost of of depression and anxiety and and mental illness it's not the kind of machismo sort of male industrial labor aesthetic that that we try and import from the 20th century that to me is it's just ridiculous
1: i think this really strikes like a link between the two pieces we're like, you know, in, in the first piece, when you talk about Jermaine Greer, what you talk, one of the things you, I think you're looking back to was the possibility of a collective subject around gender. And I think now we're talking about the challenges or the absence of a collective subject around the class relationship or around the various different oppressions that might be covered by intersectionality or its absence, right? So, like, it's, I think there's sometimes it's too easy to think that there is. There's just an and I think you can even find this problem in Marx and in Marxism's that like The class dynamic produces too easily like the class in itself an actual collective Mm. subject that can engage in, in change and one of the things that I think about like our present is that the vast majority of us sell our labour power, you know, are classified in that particular way as as working class and ever before. But that Mm. experience has not easily led to an experience of of an understanding of ourselves as part of a collective subject that can struggle on either that terrain of that relationship or overcome it.
2: Um,
0: Yeah, I think that... That's one of the, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's what makes capital so good at being capital is that it learns. It learns from everything you throw at it. Everything that doesn't kill it basically makes it stronger because it learns something about the people that hate it. It learns something about the people that are dissatisfied under it or whatever. Um, and I think that that's, that's particularly true um, in, in this case where, what What capital has learned from people who tried to oppose it in the past as some kind of working class collective subject is that if there is a working class collective subject, that's dangerous and it has to be it has to be somehow broken up. and I think that you know there there are various ways that uh, that that's achieved. um one of the 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 best ones that's also topical that I've been thinking about recently is um have you guys seen the ad that's been on TV for the, I think it's for the Bankers Association or something?
1: Mm, no. Maybe.
0: It's great. It's if absolutely it wasn't great. on
1: ABC Kids, I wouldn't see it.
0: <laughs> it's this It's this ad, right, where they get a bunch of um, supposedly, you know, every, everyday, everyman Australians to say things like, the profits, the banks don't keep the profits. Mm. The profits go to go to everyday. Eighty percent of the profits go to you guys. They all go to you. Um, and I'm sure if you did an analysis of who actually captures, you know, the profits of the banks, it would be hugely skewed. Obviously, hugely skewed towards people who own a lot of shares and who are therefore already rich. But it's a way of breaking up that kind of collective subjectivity by saying, hey, you don't have anything in common with you know your fellow workers what even is a worker you know who you do have something in common with me a banker
3: <laughs> mm. yeah it's really interesting because I, I always whenever we, we talk about this talk about identity I get drawn back to another concept of experience which is a which is a concept that um, like E.P. Thompson in particular, but like talks about, um, he's a like a, Mar- a Marxist historian in, in England. And he talked about how the working class, he has this famous aphorism that the working class was present in its at its own formation and that the production of the working class was as much a cultural and a social experience as anything. It was about working people coming together in places and around specific causes in the case, in this case sort of against the um, mechanization of industry, um, the, the Luddites and whatnot, but also within like um, groups like Jacobin Clubs in London and, and other things. These are, are places where people are drawn together and they produce their own, they produce they, they are producing their own consciousness they are producing a new form of consciousness in spaces and in time and in relationship with, with material reality and I think unless you can think about how identity is not purely something that happens in that as an individual sense but happens as a collective like you said in the in that bankers ad that's just that just breaks people apart if you're wow. not if you're not able to understand the collective nature of identity formation and that identity formation happens the personal happens in the collective you know
1: it's interesting that you talk about ads though and this bankers example because i think um, the recent ad by the ACTU around change the rules does exactly the same, right? So mm. for listeners that haven't seen this, this is an ad where it presents a, a couple at home, workers, the kids are there, they're talking about how difficult it is, their bosses make lots of profits and they're worried about conditions and if penalty ra- rates get removed and how they survive and the camera kind of pans through the house at a, an ominous angle to imply that, um, you know, this is all threatened, and I think that's a very real conversation. I think you know that's a conversation lots of people, myself included, have all the time about the pressures of of wage labour and living in capitalist society. But it's also, which is really interesting, because it's made by by unions. It's a really demoralising and atomized mm. picture. You know, there is no mm. sense in that advertising that um, there is any capacity for those people that are on screen to be involved. As collective agents as part of a broader struggle. Now I think that's because the people who made that ad imagine that the next step will be like electing a shortened government and that shortened government will be able to wave a wand over the state and the state will be able to arbitrate the capital-labor relation and everyone will be happy. So that's all bullshit right? But it's really not- noticeable that this is coming from the bodies that are ostensibly the, you know, collective organisations of workers.
0: Yeah, because you know, I, identity can't just assert itself. It has to be, it has to be produced somehow. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, I mean, this applies to sort of feminism as well. I think there, in the past, there were um, public spaces or public time, I guess, um, time, time which was sort of for at least more for yourself than your leisure time is now. When you, when you're supposed to, you know, spend all your leisure time working on your personal brand and so on. There was just there were more sort of idle resources that could be appropriated by, um, you know, nascent collectives to sort of use to produce that that collective identity. And I think those resources are just, you know, so so hugely deracinated, so diminished that, you know, and not only are those resources diminished, you know the only, you know, the, the needs that that process used to address have been noticed and addressed badly by various industries trying to sell things to you.
3: Mm. I I guess the big question is, where's the next, where, you know, where's that next collective experience going to be coming from? And that's the radical question. That's the radical point we want to be trying to think Mm. about really, isn't it? Is where, where's the next space?
1: And I think it also touches on like the endless kind of conversation that we have at Living the Dream is, you know, the debate between how much is the production of some kind of collective identity, collective subject, whatever term you want to use, the product of just kind of broad historical forces that like trundle along and what's the capacity for conscious activity by self-declared revolutionaries or whatever to actually affect those processes? Because I get... I, you know, don't know you that that well, but I assume you don't write these articles with the assumption that there is nothing that can be done. Like so, what do you think is the possible? Like, or you know, I know I know you in the second essay that you cite, um, like Moishi Pastone, who. Um, <laughs> It's been a long time since I've, I've read... Famous
3: Marxist egghead. <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it's a long time since I've read Time, Labour and Social Domination, but my memory of him is like he's not particularly like what we'd call an activist optimist, right? But mm. like it, what, what does a kind of viable feminist or radical politics broadly look uh, like as you imagine well- it?
0: You've caught me at a particularly pessimistic moment.
1: <laughs> um, what's, what's, at, the cause, in, what's the cause like, of the that pessimism? The past year.
0: Um, look, the cause of it was basically like, you know, the cause of everything that I come to believe is true is that I sort of ha- have, have an intuition about something and then go looking for things to read about it. And having read so much um Lots of, like, I've been reading lots of anti-politics stuff recently. Lots of, um, I don't know if you've heard of these guys, the nihilist communism guys. Monsieur um, who DuPont. Are these two... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've read everything they've done and found, quite like, a lot of it, not just convincing, but sort of saying things to me that I sort of already thought but hadn't said to myself, if that makes sense. Um. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I just... You know, I'm 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 a I'm a young person. I'm I'm twenty eight and I just I look around at everyone that I know and I look around at people that I've known in the past and I look around at our conditions and I I just I, you know all I see is people competing with each other. It's we're just in this constant state of anxious competition with each other for what we were told would be things that were easy to obtain. And unless something about that changes, um, I I just – I can't – something has to change in Australia for some kind of new collectivity to arise. Um, I don't know what that change will be. I think we're probably, um, you know, (laughs) this is a very sort of back of the envelope calculation, but I think we're basically five to ten years behind the UK and the US in terms of social decline. Um, so I don't know what that change will be or when it will happen. But currently my like I I I see absolutely no at least in my experience, my personal experience, I see absolutely nothing to get excited about at the moment.
1: Mm. Well that's that's really interesting because like I guess if we you know, we started the conversation with, you know, at some level we're in a, we're in a feminist moment and we're now at the point where you're saying there's nothing like that you see like there's nothing to be excited about
0: well this is this is the topic this is the thing that i'm that i try to that i'm currently sort of slogging away trying to explain in my book is the gap between what feels like so much sort of feminist potentiality and so much energy that just gets sort of diverted into these channels and just flows straight out to sea and goes nowhere Mm. i think there's there's it's not that people don't care about this stuff. I think people care about it more than they ever have. It's just that it's so easy for, you know, various factions of capital or the state or whatever to just capture that energy and do what it wants with it. There's, you know, Mm. there's nowhere for it to go.
3: I remember there's this really good article, I don't remember who wrote it now, um, but it was about the Fight for 15 campaign in America, um, which is a campaign to get... um, very poorly paid workers who are in fast food industry and, and cleaning jobs and whatnot, um, a $15 minimum wage, which is kind of ridiculous given that Australia has like of a $20 minimum wage, but you yeah. know, that's where they're at in the States at the moment. Um, but those are industries that are overwhelmingly female industries, you know, and this art, this, this author was, was making, it might've been um, the Chapo um, Chapo Trap House woman. Um, um, Amber Lee Frost making a point about that it's actually in movements like 5:15, where you know these are new sorts of workplace-based organizations that are emerging that are overwhelmingly have women represented in them that are actually kind of leading the way not only in feminism in the states but also in terms of kind of um you know the revitalizing of a, like a real trade union movement.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great example of um. I think, something that is not happening in Australia, um, specifically because, I mean, this is a, it's a great example of there being an enormous amount of potential. I mean, you know, it's the same in Australia as it is in the US. But, I mean, the wages are a bit better, but most of our sort of retail and hospitality workforce mm-hmm. are, are, are low paid women. Many of them are single mothers as well. And mm. you know, look at look at the union that they're represented by. Look at the shoppies. What do they do? They mm. they take all of that potentiality and they just, you know, just blow it into the wind, or they you know convert it into money for that asshole Joe de Bruins to line his pockets.
2: Mm. It's not mm. that
0: there's not anything there. It's just that the the you know there are such efficient mechanisms in place to capture that sentiment and turn it into something useless turn it into something that is not dangerous at all that nothing ever happens
1: Mm. yeah i find these conversations like it's very hard in my head to separate between what is caused by kind of the the deep currents of the historical context and what is caused by specific contingent factors if that makes sense and Mm. i kind of like veer back and forward between like heavy determinism and heavy voluntarism Um, I, i know
0: exactly what you mean um the way that the way that I've sort of come to think of it is like this, um, do you know the, there's like a um, I had some like you know cosmology eggheads have this great metaphor where they say that um, God is this guy sitting in front of like a, a board of like sliders. and he's like slid the sliders to a particular like range in which life is possible in which, you know, something is possible that resembles life. And I – because I know exactly what you mean. I go through exactly the same, like, oh, you know, is it history, is it agency, is it history, is it agency kind of thing. And the, you know, the thing that currently doesn't, you know, because nothing of it is sort of like fully intellectually satisfying on this point because it's a very open question, but the thing that I currently think of when I think of this is, you know, they're, you know, history is deterministic in a sense, but it only determines a range of possibilities and where, you know, humans have a particular kind of agency to decide where they want to be in those range of possibilities that has to do with, you know, collective power and stuff like that um, and, and self-consciousness of our place in history. But I think there are hard limits on what is possible and I think it makes more sense to to evaluate where we are with reference to a particular historical constant than it does to say, oh, we could be doing this amazing thing, but for some reason we're not. It's like, well, what's the reason? (laughs) Mm.
1: Dave, are you on mute again? I am on mute again. I I have been um, rereading some of Endnotes recently, who I guess are kind of also somewhere on that spectrum of like, Monsieur Dupont, in terms of that, like, there's a particular UK-based reading of European ultra-leftism, that they're all kind of there somewhere. Though I'm sure those people don't like each other and if they listen to this, they'd be offended. Um, Of course they don't like each other. (laughs) (laughs) But they were all in a punk band together in 1983 or something. Um, Yep. But they talk about, like, that each different... I guess, kind of historical arrangement of capitalism has a different antagonistic horizon. You know, and certainly in the second issue of um, Ednotes, they talk about that where capitalism is at the moment, it's increasingly hard for it to reproduce, actually, the capital relationship itself. They're very much into talking about, like, it's producing surplus populations of people all around the world. And therefore, like, the horizon is no longer the old horizon of the workers movement you know the advancement of demands within the system but rather it's about you know how can we reproduce ourselves how do we communize outside of capitalism because the horizon is different and i think whether you agree with their diagnosis of um, the horizon or not and they're particularly deterministic kinds of people i think that is an interesting way of like beginning to think about what is possible because i always think there's a there's a room for some kind of agency and one of the things is like how do we determine what is the horizon of antagonism in this particular moment of capitalism and i think part of the reason where often it seems like nothing is going on is because the benchmarks that we have are benchmarks from other periods of capitalism Um, and that maybe makes us point in the wrong direction but I guess yeah, I,
0: I, completely, I completely agree with that. Um, I think that um, it's interesting that you said surplus populations because that's something that I'm really interested in. But I'm also interested in um, when I think when there is this massive surplus surplus population that can't be incorporated into the labor force. On the other hand, there's also this huge pile of unproductive capital that can't be invested productively, and it's like. Maybe that's, you know, those two things are, what did you call it before? The horizon of antagonism? Yeah,
1: yeah this is pretty much the second issue of Endnotes. If yeah. you're interested in those things, if you haven't read, I don't know if you've read read it or not, but that's what they're talking about, surplus population and surplus capital together. Yeah. Um, Yeah, look, I think the other thing is like, and this is, I'll try not to make this point go too long. But I think there's a, a problem about how these kind of determinist, the, like theorists, and they're often, you know, they're Marxist or Marxian, is actually how they understand fetishism itself. Like, like and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, we're talking about culture industry, someone like Adorno, they have a really hard definition or strong definition of fetishism, you know, in a capitalist society, our behaviour gets caught in these fetishized and estranged social forms, and that's kind of it. Right? And that's mm-hmm. what's propelling forwards. There's people, um, like John Holloway and Werner Bonefeld, they kind of take um, what came out of Italian Marxism, the emphasis on self activity and rebellion, and they put it into those categories and they say well, what you've got to understand is that like fetishism is no longer is never finished, you know, like it's going on all the time, like um, Everything being turned into commodities and being determined by their value represented in prices, that's an ongoing, constant process. But it's a process that's like constantly contested and fucked with and misfitting all the time. Like, if I don't think you could go into any workplace and find everyone there doing their job as prescribed. You know, that there's just constant forms of insubordination. I think that's the same about, about feminism, isn't it? Like, who actually conforms to the gender rules of the present? Like, and- Yeah, and, nobody. And, <laughs> and mm. like, um, maybe you could say, all right, but in this historical moment, they don't hit like a critical mass that that is able to overcome the social structure. Well, that's totally true, right? But they're at least evidence of the concrete possibility of struggle and its alternative like Mm. I i guess it then becomes like well is there something as a discrete individual or a small group of individuals that we can like concretely do and i'm not sure and maybe we don't even know what would work until retrospectively but i think obviously by the fact that we're having this conversation we believe something can have an impact. Like I don't, like this is a nice conversation, but I don't think we're having this conversation just to have a nice conversation. Well, mm. that's the,
0: I mean, that's the other thing about sort of those very, I guess, sort of pessimistic deterministic ways of, of, of understanding our situation and understanding capital mm. is that, you know, as much as, as much as they sort of present themselves as pessimistic and, um, they, they are actually not in what they say, but I guess in that they say what they say, they are sort of performatively optimistic because why would you bother saying this stuff if you didn't think that people would read it and, or, or listen to it and get something out of it? And that's sort of like, even though I am, you know, again, going through a pretty sort of pessimistic, deterministic phase at the moment, um, I think to myself, you know, why, why are you interested in this stuff? And the answer that I give back to myself is because I want to understand things so that I can change them.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And, you know, if that involves getting, you know, heavily invested in sort of analytic theories that don't allow much possibility for change, then so be it.
3: <laughs> mm. I suppose as a, as a historian I'm kind of like um, often – like I find it hard to be unduly pessimistic because you know, like even when people are really fucked with and like really under the thumb, they always find ways to get around it, and always, like historically speaking, always find ways to like to still be rebellious and to still to still kind of change things.
0: Yeah, there's always a so way I'm, to kick, kick out the jams, I guess.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And went back to the
1: 1960s. Yeah. Well, speaking of time travel, if we could travel back to 2016, like mm. you finish the 2016 essay in a far more optimistic note, where you know describe a situation of kind of diffuse antagonism that's going on, mm. and you finish it with, in this scenario, instead of leaning in, we would dig up.
3: Yeah,
1: the, it's, a little, what, it's a little
0: Simpsons joke for all you out there.
1: Oh, is it? <laughs> it is um, a Simpsons
3: joke, but also yep. a Marx joke, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What, uh, I was pretty happy
1: with that end of it. Um, what did, at, yeah. can you can you remember what you thought of in 2016 of digging up, looking like, and what do you think about it now?
0: I can remember exactly writing the end of that, and I don't think you're going to like the answer either. <laughs> I think the the reason that I wrote The Optimistic Ending was because I thought uh, my editor and the people who read it are going to get mad at me if I don't write an optimistic ending. So that's what I'm going to do. (laughs) Uh,
1: Would you still write an optimistic ending?
0: Um, Well, no, I don't know. Um, This is sort of why I haven't produced very much work, like serious sort of essay writing or book writing work in the past year or year and a half is because I don't know mm. I really don't know um, all of my all of my intuitions are really sort of really pessimistic and really deterministic and then on the other hand I'm like nah, yeah well nobody wants to read that do they even I don't want to read that I'm not, like I'm the one writing it and I sort of haven't figured out a way around that sort of quandary yet In your
1: 2017 piece you look quite positively at Bernie Sanders as, like, a, I'm not sure if you use the term left populism or not, maybe you do, but I guess as, like, an indication of these kind of reborn social democratic projects. Do you currently have much optimism in Sanders, Corbyn, maybe something in Australia?
0: Um, I, I have optimism in, in the sort of, um, I guess, you know, the, the process of trying to establish some kind of collective subjectivity. Like that, that is still really exciting to me. I'm still pretty pessimistic about it, but it it you know it, it makes my skirt fly up at least a little bit. Um, I'm not I don't like his politics at all. Like I'm not a social democrat. I find the whole thing just insulting most of the time. Um, but the collective part of it, that's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting to me definitely. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's um, one of the regular listeners to um, our show who's based in the UK and I don't know if the, I know their um, the actual proper name, but their blog, I think it's called Nothing Is Ever Lost, wrote a long comment after our last um, interview with Tad and one of the things they reference is this uh, German group Wildcat um, has a critique of Corbyn and it's on the... Um, the angry workers of the world blog and it mentions in this article that members of endnotes have joined the labor party no (laughs) you know and um and but also like a whole a wide range of people from that kind of like ultra-left communizer now i don't know if they have and you you'd be you'd wonder about their motivations of course you know like i'm not sure like, as you would know, like, we have a varyingly kind of critical supportive relationship of Brisbane's own radical reformist project. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't joined the Greens. When John came over and picked up the microphone tonight, you were wearing a Greens <laughs>
3: T-shirt. but <laughs> I was, and I still am, proudly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, like, um, do, you, do you see that? Like, and I guess, you know, despite the, the shit politics do you see that kind of potential of a radical reformist project in Australia or do you think that'd be pointing the wrong direction
0: oh look I don't know um, um I think that like one of the lessons that I have learnt about recent Australian history quite recently um so again this is pretty like rough and ready in terms of like accuracy <laughs> historical <laughs> yeah. accuracy is like I feel like one of the things that Australian politics is really good at, and I'm not sure why this is, maybe it has to do with like the kinds of really stable mainstream political constituencies that are formed by things like preferential voting and compulsory voting. But we seem to be much better at incorporating like extremes into the mainstream. Like Mm. we don't, you know, we have much less of a, a history of, um, sort of electoral radicalism I guess you would say than the US or or even the UK um so I I think if it does happen in Australia it will be it will have it will have to be labor it will there's just no other way to me there's just no other way that it will happen other than through the ALP and Basically, everything that gets filtered in that way, like you know, extremes get extremes of the right wing get filtered through the Liberal Party, and you know, finger quotes extremes of the left get filtered through the Labor Party. But they get mm. you know, enshittened. They 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 become sort of pale shades of their former self. I mean, you know, <laughs> sort of right wing racism in the nineties, sort of got filtered through the liberal party as our terrible offshore detention policy through howard mm. but even that kind of racism is sort of a you know a pale a pale imitation a a, 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 a transparent pandering to the real racists in the electorate and i worry mm. that those forces sort of operating within the labor party um I mean, again, because we have compulsory voting and we have preferential voting. If Mm. there is some kind of widespread dissatisfaction that expresses itself as some kind of leftism in Australia, it will have to be absorbed into the Labor Party. But how shittily absorbed will it be? I don't know. But it has to be the Labor Party. I can't see it happening any other way. You know, and the and the and the union movement. I guess.
3: Shall we? Do we have any final thoughts, anyone, before we wrap up? Well, like we I, are nearly at the hour mark, I think, aren't
1: we? Uh, pretty much. Um, mm. Look, I, I guess, like, that analysis, like, for me, forecloses the possibility of kind of radical reformism as an approach in Australia. Like, I do think, like, the... the I also think at a deeper level, like, the experience of neoliberalism in Australia was radically different from the experience in the UK or the US. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, and that, like... And I think we've talked about this on the show before that there's something very unique in Australia that like whilst the the share of of profit to capital was shifted in their direction, people on the whole in an unequal fashion with certain populations certainly left out also experienced a rise in material wealth even if that Mm -hmm. material wealth was partly funded by the expansion of credit, right? And which has been one of the most most effective um, individualisation, you know, Things that goes on and we supplement our wage by credit it to this insane level but I think that's all all really important but for me like the Labour Party is just the party of capital in Australia and that you know so much of the Australian experience like the the, like the toxic effect of labourism which is that you know the way that we try to maintain um, decent sense of conditions is to arbitrate the capital labour relation and limit the pool of labour through um, migration controls, and then support specific industries. Like that's one of yeah. the most input. Impo- that's one of the most important. And like I, right now, I think it's more important to cri- to critique the politics of the Labor Party than it is the Coalition. Mm. Like, yeah, I, think I, it's I, a- I don't. I don't think that's sectarianism because I think the coalition's just like oh, you know Dutton's preparing his leadership challenge by arguing for you know the reinstantiation of Rhodesia in. Yeah, and um, and yeah. I just said that like because, Rhodesia, great again. Yeah, well, oh, my, man. my only um, decent joke is that you know, if if Western Australia ever seceded, they could rename themselves East Rhodesia. But um, <laughs> 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 that's a pretty good joke. <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> you. That's uh, that's why I built my own ability to, to bring it up. And now, like you know, so that they're falling apart. But there's certainly like a Laborist project at the moment that I think is actually mm. winning some kind of traction. And like that's the enemy. You know, this idea Mm. that, like, all we need is, like, that, you know, change the rules, whatever that means, but the state to come back and arbitrate the relationship again, and we'll all be fine. That's the toxic poison.
0: I can see, I can see how it is so appealing, even to the most, like you mentioned, you know, oh, you know, maybe some, you know, members of the Endnotes Collective have joined the UK Labour Party. But I can see how it's appealing, because you look at everyone around you, and they're like, I need a fucking wage rise. What are you doing about it? Are you going to help me or not? Or are you just going to, you know, sit in your armchair and say, oh, laborism is the enemy? I mean, of course, I choose to sit in my armchair and say laborism is the enemy. But I can see why. I can see Mm. how that, you know, it presents a sort of urgent dilemma to which the solution, you know, sort of seems obvious.
3: I I guess for me, when I when I think about it, I'm trying to think about the material constitution of, say, the US Democratic Party, where like Sanders is not actually a member of the Democrats. He's not involved really in the Democratic Party. He was an outsider coming into it, which is interesting. And in Labourism in the UK, of course, Corbyn had been sitting there for decades on as a radical part of that party, you know, that it does have a significant and longer history of radicalism, I think, than the Australian Labour Party has ever has ever had, as I think a result of the weirdly specific Australian circumstances whereby basically the first decade of the 20th century um, the Labour Party was the natural party of government in Australia before the British Labour Party had managed to even like, you know, managed to get more than a handful of seats. So, Labourism as a project is something, something different, I think, I don't know. Yeah, I think Australia is
0: just It is really, it's just a really weird place.
1: Totally. Like, I guess there's two... weird
0: place.
1: Yeah, there's two things on that, I guess. Like, I have this half-baked theory about, like, the other part about Australia is Australia developed capitalism largely through... There's always been, like, capital flowing into the country. And I wonder if, like, that meant that the level of exploitation, of grinding stuff out of people... You could have it. You could give. You could have longer chains, mm-hmm. bigger cages in Australia yeah, because yeah. capital was flowing in. But I guess the other thing is as well: it's like, how much do you understand, like Corbin and Sanders, as being products of a particular cycle of struggle? You know that. You know, is there a, what's the line from Occupy to Sanders? What's the line from you know the 2011 riots and student movement to Corbin? Even mm. if it's like, a, like a split line or people trying to think out. Like the problem, you know, that they had these movements of the squares, they hit a certain limit, where to go next, and a certain wing of that went in a parliamentary way. And you'd only try to be involved in that not because of like the form like it's the people you want to have a conversation with and not in some terrible like trotty turning up, here's my newspaper way. <laughs> Like you don't want it. You don't want an ambulance chase. This, but like harsh
0: but true. But because yeah. I
1: think that's a real problem too, right? Like, and you don't want to, you know, to, like you don't want an ultra-left version. You know, turn up with your nihilistic communism in one hand and kamate in the other, and be like, yeah. Um, but actually, th- there's something about it that has a possibility for conversation. I, th- I think there, and like I guess um, I feel like I'm reciting all my old cliches now there's this (laughs) there's this really amazing essay by paolo verno from the mid 90s where he talks about like like eruptions of struggle um, and i think it's really important you know he's someone who goes through the movement of 77 experience prison experiences defeat is in the 90s in the middle of Berlusconi, trying to work out how capitalism has changed and is arguing that there's possibility you know that these changes have actually increased the possibility for communism right and he talks about the miracle and says you know social eruptions always appear as a as a miracle and for people who orientated towards them they're both what's the line they're both awaited but unexpected or you know Mm -hmm. like you know that you'll still you'll always be shocked by it you know it'll never look but you've you can have enough of a material kind of orientation and i think like it means that even if you um Like, if you're in Australia right now, it's the capacity to say that, okay, there's a certain picture we have, and it says this is what's going on in Australian society. But of course we know the antagonistic nature of the capital relation. We know capitalism's tendencies towards crisis. We know how people struggle against hierarchies of identity. There is something more that is not in that picture. And even little things we can do, like record a podcast, are premised on it's really a faith in some ways that our intellectual understanding of the capital dynamic means that we're kind of we're talking to tomorrow that sounds really weird and religious
0: well I mean you know communism is a bit sort of weird and religious isn't it <laughs> we try and get away from that it, it is yeah totally yeah.
3: there's a certain messianism Mesian, associated yeah. with it um, a millenarian hope that you know yeah, like even totally. in the bottomist deepest um of holes we can still find a way out and that it's actually from those bottom from the deepest of holes that we can dig our way back out again you know
1: is there anything we haven't given you a, a, an opportunity to talk about eleanor oh no not
0: at all i feel like this has been a great chat
1: how do you want to finish
0: um i, I don't know I, I guess i would say that like if if I'm if I'm taking my own pessimism really seriously, and if I'm taking my own determinism really seriously, what I like, you know, the analysis of my own pessimism would be the reason that you feel pessimistic, and the reason that you're drawn to these sort of deterministic, you know, f- forms of analysis, is because that's just seems to be where your context is at the moment. Like that sort of seems to be where Australia is at the moment, moment. and so, you know, I'm 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 hoping that that again when you're at the bottom or when we are at the bottom that's when the surprise is just around the corner
3: <laughs> mm. well that's a yeah, probably... good and not frightening clown way
0: yeah that's no good. no frightening clowns no
3: yeah well
1: cool. that's that's probably a really good way of ending the show um thank you very much eleanor for spending the time talking with us on living the dream as a reminder if people are interested in reading your work how do they do that
0: Um, Follow me on Twitter. Uh, My username is Marrowing. Marrow like the bone and ing like it's a verb. Um, And if you Google my name with me-engine on the end, M-E-A-N-G-I-N, J-I-N, gosh, I can spell, Um, then both of my me-engine pieces will pop right up and you can give yourself the huge treat of reading 6,000 words of my half-baked ramblings. I think they're brilliant. (laughs) I
1: think people should definitely read them. I agree. All right and John, Thanks, guys everyone I I've got a i have got I should go to bed I've got to get up at 4:30 uh, in the morning to fly to Sydney oh my for gosh. work. So
3: yeah that's ridiculous. Yeah got to go. That's
2: very ridiculous.
1: Yeah it's balls. All right well everyone have a nice night you've been listening to Living the Dream.